Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This is episode, what is this, episode 234. I'm your sort of host, Philip Morton, <laughs> and uh, Jonathan Stark is in the panel. Hello. So for this episode, Jonathan suggested, and I agreed, that we could talk about productized services. And mm. I'm just going to hand it off to you, Jonathan, uh, to take it away. Cool. So productized services, I was just saying pre-show to Philip that uh, I, I rolled out a number of productized services over the last year or two, and it's had a dramatic impact, a positive impact on my business, like in the six-figure range. So it, it's, you know, it seemed like something that is creeping into people's consciousness more and more. Perhaps that's just blue car syndrome. You know, you buy a blue car and then you see them everywhere. So maybe I'm just seeing them everywhere, but... I think productized services are a really good way for freelancers and consultants to start thinking about ways to increase their profitability and income, you know, using this. It's, it's really sort of a technique, I guess. So figured we'd jump in by defining what productized services are, use some examples of productized services that either we offer or uh, of friends that we have who offer them. And then maybe talk about some pros and cons and, and that sort of thing. Sound cool? Sounds good. Let's do it. Great. So correct me if yours is different, but my definition of a productized service is that it's a relatively fixed scope, high touch service that you publish on your website or in your marketing materials at a specific price. So it's almost like a custom project or a custom proposal that you'd publish. So if you imagine normally what happens is a, a prospect contacts you and says, hey, we'd like you to do some things for us. Could you put together a proposal? And then you, you do that proposal and you give it to them. And that proposal has a price on it, of course, and describes what you're going to do and what the outcomes are going to be and perhaps some options that they can choose from. And, you know, there are prices at the end. So if you imagine just taking one of those proposals and, and kind of anonymizing it and putting it on your website with the price, it gives you a dramatically different way to market and sell something that you already do. Yeah, you know, can I jump in with some thoughts already? Yeah, please. Uh, one of the things that it, like, it, it seems small when you, it's like, it's like a half of a sentence in your definition, but it forces a really big change when you start to stop, when you start to stop being uh, <laughs> reactive to what your clients are telling you they need. So what I mean by that is if you think of yourself as I'm a developer, I'm a writer, I'm a designer, you're thinking about your skills that you apply as inputs to a project. And so when you're thinking of those terms, you have like sort of half of the uh, ingredients necessary to uh, bake a value proposition. <laughs> it's like you want to make pancakes, you've got flour, but you don't have the other things. The client has those things. And in, in this analogy, those things are, what's the problem that those skills are being applied to? Or what's the business need that those skills are being applied to? And so I'm thinking back to, you know, my early days as a freelancer, I just kind of went around with not all of the ingredients I needed to construct a value proposition. So, you know, I was like, I'm a writer. That's what I do. That's, that's the magic I apply. But that doesn't create any value when it's lacking the other stuff, which is what's the particular 
situation or the, or the particular problem that my writing skill was going to be applied to. And when I had those two ingredients, then I had, you know, the essence of a value proposition. And, you know, one of the things that I think about immediately when you give that definition, Jonathan, is that in productized services, you're taking control of the whole thing. You're saying, here's the skill, but also here's the problem. Here's the business situation in which this skill will produce value. And you can't really have a productized service without both of those parts. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I 100% agree. It, it gets you thinking about the outcomes. You know, it's like, to use your example of being a writer, it's what most people in, you know, freelance writer say, hey, anybody need a writer? And I don't know anybody who needs a writer, but I know a lot of people who need things that a writer might be, you know, results that a writer might be able to provide to them. Right. And if you can't articulate the value that you provide to clients, it's really hard for them to imagine it, to connect the dots. So if you're like, hey, do anybody need a writer? The only people who are going to say yes are people who know they need a writer. But those people, not only is it, I don't know if it's a small pool, but uh, it's difficult to find those people anyway. It's difficult to find people who know they need a writer. It's not like uh, an outwardly apparent quality that maybe I would recognize in some of my friends. But more importantly, it, it doesn't, it's not a high value. So like people who know they need a writer, they're thinking of what you can do for them in a way that's low value. Right. Like, I just need somebody to write some stuff for me. I need right. this stuff written. It's a task on my to-do list. I know I need to write this stuff. I don't have time to do it. I just need someone to do it for me. I'd rather do it myself. I just don't have time. So if you, if you turn that around and so Philip throw out like a particular, what's a, what's an outcome that a writer might be able to provide for a client, like a, a some sort of productized service for writing. So they might, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one would be to support a product launch. Let's say that, you know, you're a, somebody like Microsoft and you're going to be launching a new product or if you're uh, maybe a better example that might be on the more on the sort of small, medium size uh, business scale is you're entering a new market, right? And you need to equip your salespeople with what they need to sell into this new market. That's, that's an that's outcome good, that, yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. So once you have something like that, or if a student came to me with that, just said exactly what you just said, this, the sales page for the product or service starts to write itself because you can identify, outwardly identify qualities of the target market. So, oh, you you know, you're trying to expand into a, a new area. You have an outside sales force. Uh, you've got a new product for a new market and so on and so forth. And then you can say, oh, well, imagine if you could speak your, uh, the language of your new customers. Imagine if you knew what your customers thought were the best features of your new product. Imagine all of these things. And wouldn't it be great if you had them? That becomes the valuable outcome and then you can explain in your sales page how you would do those things. So you could say, oh, you know, if you, once you pay for whatever, 30 days to product launch, you know, Inc, whatever, whatever the product is called, product type service is called, here are the things that will happen. First, we'll have a kickoff meeting with all the stakeholders. Then I'll get, I'll have individual interviews with these different people. Then you'll give me the names of 75 existing clients or 75 people in the target market. I'll do usability studies with them. I'll interview them. I'll record everything for posterity, posterity, <laughs> posterity. 
Yeah, I had a I had my annual physical yesterday, so prostate's on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Don't turn forty, people. So you know, you get the idea. So you can it it starts to it starts to write itself because you're thinking of the goal that would be attractive to the client. And what's really important here to loop back to the definition is that regardless of the size of the client, you know, it could be, you know, maybe it's Microsoft, maybe it's some startup in Silicon Valley, maybe it's somebody in their garage, but the scope of what you will do for them, the time it will take you to do and other resources that it'll take from you, they're relatively the same. So whether you're doing it for a mom and pop pizza place or Papa Gino's, it's still going to take you about five hours across two weeks, something like that. So your costs remain very fixed, regardless of how big your, your customers are or your clients are. And that's what allows you to publish it at a price on your site, because you can pick a number that where, where you're not going to get killed. And that is a good value for a certain slice of your target audience. And they can make a very clear value decision based on your marketing materials without talking to you at all. And, you know, either they can see your price and be like, is this guy crazy? I would never pay $5,000 for that. But other people who have a bigger budget and maybe a bigger opportunity are going to look at that $5,000 and think, oh, that's a no brainer. I might, even if this guy totally stinks, it's worth it just to try it because we've got a, you know, a $5 million opportunity here and to, to drop 5,000 bucks to perhaps reduce some of the risk or increase our chances of success is a no brainer. You know, you mentioned the copywriting itself and... I can assure people that if the idea of, you know, writing a web page or a website or just just describing a service has been intimidating to you, there's a couple very likely culprits. One is that you don't, you don't have a clear enough picture of why somebody would hire you or what they would do with your service or your attention is on the input of some complex thing and and this is particularly true, I think, with larger enterprise type projects. You know, you're focused on on your little slice of this pie, and you don't really have the context, the larger context about what does this do for the business. You know, why are they spending three million dollars on this new ERP system? I mean, yeah, you you generally understand it. Why? It's because they want to. <laughs> they decided to, and <laughs> you know, somebody approved the money. But specifically, why? And you know, looping back to what I was saying earlier, the copywriting becomes a lot easier when you understand the problem that your services solve and the value that it creates. And, you know, as someone who's looked at a lot of websites and sort of thrown up in my mouth a little bit <laughs> at, at how focused the copy tends to be on me, 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 us, 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 which I, I've done my share of that myself uh, earlier on in my, my freelancing, the challenge about website copywriting seemed to be how can I describe myself in a way that's both accurate and is going to just, you know, make people salivate with desire to pick up the phone and hire me. And uh, paradoxically, the answer is not by talking about yourself, <laughs> but by talking about their problems, their needs. And, um, and, and when you design a, a good productized service, you have to answer that question of what's the need, what's the problem. So I feel like I'm saying the same thing, but it's through this lens of writing, writing the copy becomes so much easier when you have a clear idea of what's the problem you're solving. If you just start with that, like if you just write a paragraph or two about that, 
then the rest kind of naturally unfolds. And then you're like, okay, well, I guess I've described the problem. What's next? How you solve it is next. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, what's next after that? Maybe it's the price or maybe it's a little bit more detail about why your approach is a good one. And that's objection handling. And all of a sudden you just kind of find yourself almost naturally writing a sales letter. Right. I totally agree. And not only is it easier to write the sales page, but it's easier to price because I I get the same, you know, my focus is pricing. And when people have a hard time, you know, when they're trying to switch from hourly billing to value pricing or really any other kind of fixed pricing, their estimates of what they should put down as a number just vary widely for the same project. So people will contact me and they say, you know, I was going to do this by the hour. I'd estimated it, let's just say $50,000. Uh, but should I, should I fix price it at 50,000 or 500,000 or 5 million? Like they have no clue. It, and, and the reason they have no clue is about what the price it is because they have absolutely no clue why someone would hire them to do this thing. They only know that the client wants them or has expressed to them to, that they want them to do a list of tasks, but they have done no research or no, no diagnosis really to find out why they want that list of tasks done. So you have absolutely nothing to base a price on. So if, if you're having a hard time writing, heck, your homepage, any, if you have a hard time writing anything on your website, you're just staring at the page like, I don't know what to put here. And you end up with this sort of jumbled, generic, you know, kind of like, it's kind of like weasel words about yourself and like quality and, you know, passion and just basically you're talking about nothing. Or you just have n- no concept of what to price your services at other than just estimate how long it would take to, to complete some tasks. The problem is you need to find out from your customers why they hire you and what they value most about the things that you do for them. And there are tons of ways to do this. I'm not sure if we need to go down that path here or if that's off topic, but that's the thing. Once you have the answer to that, it becomes really easy to price. It becomes well much easier to price. It becomes much easier to write your sales copy and it becomes much easier to create productized services to loop it back. Yep. As you were talking, I was thinking that it's possible to, to develop a productized service and use it as a way to test something. So you could use it to test pricing, right? Or you could also use it to test basically a value proposition. Like maybe you're thinking, um, I'm a generalist web developer now. I would really like to what would be a good example of a product as service? I'd really Kurt's like website rec- rescues is a great one. That's a good one. Another one that might be uh, relevant to folks is I'd like to focus on building microsites because those can be real profitable because they generate leads or they have some other virtue that is really valuable to the kind of business you work with. Right. So it would be a way to, if you were thinking about changing your market position, it's a way to test that without going all in. And that, that I think yes. that's another wonderful aspect of productized services. Right. It, to, to just rephrase that in case it wasn't hundred percent clear, let's say you're drinking Phillips Kool-Aid and you have an idea for a positioning statement. If you're trying to position your, your entire business, it feels very, very scary. But if you just you know pick one thing to create a positioning statement for like one service or one product, it's a lot less, feels a lot less threatening because if it fails, it means probably no one saw it or it's just wrong. So it's, it just feels a lot less risky. 
Uh, but so let's let's give a you started to we started to sort of talk about examples. Let's give a few examples of like classic productized services for the typical freelancer and just to give just kind of like instantiate a little bit so that it doesn't feel as um, maybe as vague as it might. One of the OG examples is Nick DeSabado's um, draft revise service. So his company is called draft <laughs> and revise is one of several productized services that he offers. It was, it was the one he started out with originally and uh, just a brief description. I hope I'm not doing it a disservice uh, because it's changed over the years. When it started out, it was basically, I'll run A-B tests for you on a money-making web property for, you know, X dollars a month, or, I mean, that makes it sound like it's $9 a month, but it's you know, <laughs> X thousand dollars a month. And we will incrementally, iteratively improve this money-making web property so that it makes more money. And ideally more than you've invested in the service. So um, that's one. Uh, why don't we just take turns, Jonathan? Sure. Uh, also, uh, another classic one is Kurt Elster's Website Rescues, which you can find at uh, ethercycle.com slash pricing. Ethercycle's the agency that he runs. And this was his, it was his original productized service, actually. Uh, and I'll, just to give you the idea, it's, it says on the site, rather than starting from scratch with the new website, we make dozens of small fixes to your existing Shopify theme. They focus on Shopify. Uh, while no one change is major, all of these changes combined make a big impact on your conversion rate. And they've got that priced right now at uh, $3,995. And you can imagine someone who you're like, okay, I've got a Shopify site, you know, and I know how much money it makes. And to imagine that... And if I have the sense that my conversion rate is low, it's very clear to me that if I can improve my conversion rate, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be a direct multiplier on my bottom line. So if that direct multiplier, even a 1% change in my conversion rate, if that equals $50,000 or $500,000 and all of the other trust indicators are in place about Kurt, I trust that he's, uh, you know, good at what he does and he understands Shopify, you know, all those normal things then I can sit here and look at this page and make a decision almost immediately about if roughly $4,000 is worth the investment without even talking to them. So, um, you know, I have a whole list of examples. These are two specific examples that you can check out. You can go to draft.nu or you can go to ethercycle.com. But there are other things, you know, that I often recommend to freelancers, like a, a website teardown where someone, for whatever reason, they, they know their site stinks, but they don't know what to do. That's and something you can, I was going to jump in and say that's something that Kurt offers also, uh, along with, uh, I think he and Kai Davis team up on, on that service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And they just, you know, they, someone sends them, I, I don't know if this is how they do it, but the concept is that, uh, someone knows their website stinks, they want to make it better. So they pay you some amount of money to review the website. So you're probably some sort of web design expert or usability expert. And you would maybe make a video of yourself running through the site and and kind of deconstructing and say, okay, here are 10 things that I would do immediately to change this. Just based on best practices, odds are very high that you're going to have increased whatever you want. So increased conversions or increased uh, decreased card abandonment or whatever. I, I actually do something similar to this uh, that I call a mobile usability report, or sometimes I call it a mobile onboarding. Lately, it's been focused on onboarding where people are like, geez, we're having just a horrible success 
you know, with increasing sales or memberships on our mobile site. So we spent all this money to have a mobile site built and it's doing nothing for us. So my value proposition is like, oh, did you spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on a mobile website that's doing nothing for you? Question mark. And then you can imagine someone in that situation is going to be like, yes. And then I can say, well, imagine if it was totally kicking butt for you. Imagine if it did all the things that you were hoping it was going to do. Imagine if you were attracting more millennials or you were having, making more sales or whatever, whatever the thing is. And I can do a, within a couple of hours, I can just, you know, collect the information that I need to go through all of their, and not all of, but go through uh, a sampling of their email marketing, the landing pages, the site itself, the sign up, check out all of these things. I can just run through it pretty quickly, uh, record the whole thing, do, you know, think out loud onto the video, write up a report after the fact and create a really, really valuable piece of it, diagnosis around what the problems are. Perhaps I could include some prescriptive analysis, you know, so like here are 10 things that I think you should do. So it's like on, on the one hand, I can say, okay, here are all the points of friction. Here are all the problems that you're, you're having. And, and then, you know, maybe a more expensive version says, and here are 10 things that you could have your web team do about it. And maybe a more expensive version is, oh, I can put you in touch with a team that can do these things for you. But there are tons of things like this, security audits, database performance audits, uh, application architecture plans, disaster recovery plans. That's a good one that no one wants to do themselves. Cloud migration, technology roadmaps, marketing calendars. There's, there's a million things you can do that kind of occupy this, what I would see as the earlier stages of an engagement. So uh, I got this from Blair Enns at Win Without Pitching. He defined the four phases of an engagement, which I think are just a very eye-opening, uh, really amazing. And those four phases are uh, diagnosis of the problem, prescription of a therapy, application of the therapy, and reapplication of the therapy. And most freelancers operate solely in phase three. They're just always applying a therapy, most often a therapy that was prescribed by the client themselves. Uh, but oftentimes you'll have some communication in the early stages of a project where you help them with some diagnosis and prescription and then apply the therapy. But usually folks give that away for free, thinking like, oh, I'll make all my money on the implementation. But I would argue that those earlier uh, phases, the diagnosis and prescription, are the most profitable to the provider. And they're extremely valuable to the client because getting them wrong means spending a ton of money going down the wrong path. So in my business, I just completely stopped doing the application part, the implementation, you know, the phase three and focus solely on the diagnosis and prescription stages. Are you at all, do you feel, do you miss it? Do you feel like unsatisfied that you don't get to build and, and now you're just, what, I guess planning now is mostly what you sell? I mostly do. Yep. I mostly do planning and uh, sort of, it's honestly, to me, that was always the most fun part. Okay. The most fun part was kind of like doing that strategic planning stuff where you sit back and you're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? What are you trying, what goals are you trying to achieve? How could we do it? How could we solve these big problems? And once you kind of, I think for me, if I'm really honest and I look back, my favorite parts were going through the planning phases. And a lot of times there would also be a proof of concept involved where I would be coding something to prove that, I don't know, 
there was a way to develop a, a mobile web app that had offline support and passwords or something like that. Or there is a way to offline videos without overloading the iPhone storage. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I might do a proof of concept. But after that, I think anybody, anybody that's done a software project that's listening to this knows that there's this torturous force march to hell at the end of most projects. <laughs> that they're just all these little teeny weeny bugs and details. I don't miss any of that at all. I, I miss some of the early phases at times. But really, I, I get my jollies coding my own stuff now. So if I want to, if I want to get excited, I I love coding still, but uh, I don't, at the beginning of 2016, I vowed to not, not take another client that wanted me to code for money. I don't, I don't take money for code anymore. And and for me, it was a great decision. I've got a, what I think is a interesting sort of case study that I think I can share from, from someone who's in my mentoring program. He and his wife work together. They have a lot of expertise in the e-learning space. And they, uh, I don't know, six months ago, sort of embarked on this project of taking a a very close look at what they sold clients, which was monolithic, large projects, custom projects that involved exactly, I I think those first three phases that you identified, the diagnosis, the prescription, and the application of that. And when they looked at that, they saw probably a dozen things that they could unbundle, take out and sell as productized services. So just to just go one more layer specific that, I mean, the short list is planning, you know, like, okay, we'll sit down and, and identify what uh, you're trying to do and make recommendations about how to do that without failing or at, at the lowest risk possible. They have a particular expertise when it comes to interviewing subject matter experts and finding out, like kind of taking that raw material of what a subject matter expert knows and translating that into effective e-learning. So that was another thing that they identified as a, as a stand, thing they could sell standalone. They have a bunch of what you might call sawdust, you know, like templates lying around from previous projects that they could clean up and turn into a saleable product that's almost like a, a zero touch product. And then I think they sell the same thing, but they'll customize it for you. So they're starting from a template. They're using that sort of internally to accelerate the process. And what they're selling is customizing that, but not just anybody customizing it, an expert who really understands the field. I could go on and on, but this just gives you an example that that's a real example from a re, from a real business about how you start to gradually, it's not like a wholesale overnight move. You just start to gradually see these opportunities like, oh, this has value and I don't have to struggle to sell it because the value is self-evident to people. That's probably where you start <laughs> if you're thinking about developing a productized service is something where you, you rarely have to sell it. You just have to explain it adequately and people are ready to, ready to buy it. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. 
Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is a thousand bucks and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at hire.com slash freelancer show. So just, you know, for freelancers who are just starting out, this is going to be pretty tricky because it, it is based on experience of working with clients and knowing what it working with clients, but while you're working with them, finding out why they want the work, which I, I think is just something that people need, need to exercise that muscle. You know, it, clients, especially in, I, get, I don't know if it's tied directly or if, to billing by the hour. I think it is. I, I believe that these two things are related, that you can, hourly billing allows you to start working for a client without either one of you knowing why. And that's very scary to me. And I think it, it's, it's, uh, it risks very low customer satisfaction levels at the end, because even if you do exactly what they say, it might turn out that no needle has been moved for them and they spent all this money with you. So they're not going to be happy, even though they might not blame you for their unhappiness. So I think it's better for everyone. I, never mind. I think I'm positive that it's better for everyone, uh, buyer and seller for the seller, you, the freelancer, to always be exercising that muscle of uncovering the why with the client as you're e either on your way into a project, ideally on your way into a project, but even even during a project or even after a project, you know, it, it probably feels the safest to do it after the project where you're done, you're not risking the sale. You say, you know, how, how did that affect your business? That, that website that I did for you last year, those marketing pages that I did for you last year, how did that affect your business? You know, you're going to hope it's positive, but, you know, maybe it's not. But if it's positive, they'll say, oh, you know, that, that was a game changer for us. That's my favorite. It was a game changer for us. Oh, really? Why? How? What did it change? And then that becomes, that information becomes uh, that, you know, the value proposition that Philip was describing at the beginning. So you can, you know, you can take their words and just put them on a, 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 a whatever, a webpage, whatever your marketing materials are and say, Hey, would you like this kind of an outcome that my past clients enjoyed? Great. You know, I know exactly how to do that. One of the things that is scary about productized services is they serve as a filter so if you're putting a very clearly defined uh, service offering, if you're saying this is what I believe the value of this is, this is a problem that I believe this is ideal for, and this is the price, and no, I don't change the price, everybody pays the same price, then you've created a filter. And I again, thinking back to early days of freelancing for me, that would have uh, frightened me back then because where I was coming from at that point was I am, you know, I, I'm like water and the client project is sort of the container that I'm going to be poured into and the shape of what I do depends on what the client needs. And so 
the idea of saying, well, no, there's just this sort of one aperture that you come through and it's shaped like this. And if you don't fit through that, that's okay, but we're not going to work together on this service. That would have really been a very intimidating idea to me. And, and I see people on both sides of this. I see people who re- sort of rejoice in having a filter because they know what it does. They know that if the filter is, is designed well, it screens out crappy clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a stage at which you don't want to screen out any client because you need, you need them all. You don't have your own source of leads coming in. You, you're not marketing yourself effectively or you're going through a, you know, a, a, a dry spell or whatever it is. So I understand both sides of the, of, you know, both camps there. I just want to say that for the, for, for listeners that if you find yourself sort of being frightened by the idea of a filter, maybe a don't bet your business on a productized service, uh, the way I did a a year or two ago. Uh, Mm. and I, I can talk about that if, if we want to, um, and, and B just know that at some point it feels great to have a filter because it saves you from getting on the phone with clients who are just never going to be a good fit because they, um, well, just whatever the reason there's a, there's a tons of tons of potential reasons. Mm. Yeah. This is, I've got a couple of follow-ups on this cause it's a great, I think it's a great, uh, thread. Um, first it doesn't have to be either or you can just add a productized service to your site and continue to offer ad hoc custom consulting services. You don't have to just offer a productized service. Right. Uh, so you could offer, uh, you know, a roadmap, roadmapping type of, of product and use it to lead to an implementation or, you know, an ad hoc service that you do create a, a custom quote for. Kurt Elster, who we mentioned earlier with the website rescues, he tells, he, he told me a story publicly, so I know it's okay to share this, that that's what they did with, uh, EtherCycle was just sort of a general, generalist, uh, web development shop, web, web agency. And they created this website rescues, which was specifically for Shopify stores. And long story short, it was so successful that they ended up it ended up becoming the basis of an entire new business. Like it became the business and the custom work just sort of fell off, which was super fascinating. And he's been extremely successful for all of, you know, in a completely predictable way. If you're familiar with Philip's work on positioning, where they became well-known in the Shopify space, perhaps the most well-known in the Shopify space. So they're kind of the go-to shop for anyone who is running a Shopify site. And really it's just a, you know, clients come to them. It's really just a question of whether or not, you know, they're available and if they can afford their services and they can simply go to the pricing page and see what the options are. You know, it's like a Chinese menu over there. There's, he's got about 12 different things with prices posted right on the site. So, you know, that what was once a sort of, it's kind of like he had a filter and an unfiltered, a filtered pipe and an unfiltered pipe of leads (laughs) and the filtered one ended up letting through enough high quality clients that they looked at the unfiltered pipe and they're like, why are we drinking out of that? Right. That's a great you know? analogy. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, you know, and, and I'm sure people as well, that's just, that's just one example and that's just an anecdote and, you know, Kurt's superhuman or whatever, but it's, it, it works and it doesn't have to be risky. You don't have to bet the farm on it, which is one of my, it's one of my favorite 
approaches for people who are new to this because it allows you to exercise your positioning muscles without feeling like you're threatening your entire business. It allows you to play with fixed pricing and value pricing without betting your whole business on it. And if you can, if you've got what it takes, I'm not going to say, you know, geez, obviously not everyone's cut out to be a consultant, of course, but if you, you can do this little sort of safe little cycle and, you know, do the mark, do the sort of definition, creation, marketing, sales, delivery, and follow-up for this thing on the side, you could even have it on a completely different website. You know, I have like a vanity domain just for this thing. He did. And that, that's how he started out. Yeah, he, that's, a, yes, that's true. It, it, it's still I think that it way. It still is. Yeah, Websiterescues.com. Mm-hmm. Double check that. But, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so it's, it's a great way to test the waters with all of the stuff we talk about, which I think is super, super cool. And it's the way that, it's the way that I advocate for folks in my coaching program who are on the, the newer side, you know, the younger folks who are newer to freelancing or newer to consulting. This is, this is what I say to everybody. Start off with a productized service. You can spin it up relatively quickly. You can feel each of those points. You can get familiar with each of those points that I talked about. Um, and man, what a difference it is when it comes to marketing and sales, because probably most people listening to this don't like the idea of doing marketing and sales. They just want to do what they do and they feel like it should sell itself. Well, you'll find that productized services sell themselves much better than your regular general ad hoc consulting because your price is published. So people looking at it can make a value decision without ever talking to you. And when they contact you, they're ready to go. They might have a couple of questions about this or that, but they don't, it doesn't need to be this big exploration and, you know, like, you know, tell me about your mother. You know, it doesn't turn into this <laughs> giant butt sniffing exercise <laughs> uh, to, to use the dog analogy. You know, uh, this is sort of a hunch, but you said they sell themselves. I also feel like, uh, it would be very easy for me to overstate this and say they market themselves. They don't really, but there's a difference. If you're a, just a complete generalist, if you think about how people, how word of mouth helps you out, what the pattern that I've seen, I don't have a ton of data to back this up just to, to be clear, but the pattern I've seen is people talk about your personality. Oh, they're so great to work with. They're, you know, they don't, they don't talk down to you. They don't really talk about your skills or the results you can create other than, well, they, they can do just about anything. You know, if you need a website, they can do that. Or, you know, if you need uh, some custom software written for some reason, they can do that. But the emphasis is on like how likable you are as a person. And some of us are great at what we do. We're just not that likable. <laughs> so that's not a great mm-hmm. thing to hinge your business on, uh, nor should it be. I mean, it works for some people, but I think it's not a very strong differentiator in an increasingly crowded market that's full of nice people. What I find with productized services is that you get you have an edge when it comes to word of mouth spreading because someone can look at it and say, well, it's not right for me, but I know somebody who it's right for because every detail about who it's right for is right there on the page. And it, it's probably in some kind of headline on the page. It's, it's made very explicit. So you, I think what I've seen, because I know a lot of people who do productized services, I did them myself for a while. I still do them, actually, with my mentoring program. That's very much a productized service. 
Anyway, uh, I think you get an advantage because people will want to spread the word for you because it's not like they're handing somebody a handful of water and saying, here, hold this. It has a definite <laughs> shape. You know, it has a definite, <laughs> like somebody can actually grasp it and say, yes, I understand what this is. And so I know who to tell about it. So you, you'll get a little more help, I think. Again, I don't, I don't want to overemphasize that point. Have you seen something similar, Jonathan? I've had more than one person tell me that the results, see, really the piece that we're talking about here is a positioning exercise. Uh, we're just, what we're talking about in the context of positioning a productized service. And when I've had more than one student tell me that the results are magic, like they use the word magic, when once they, once they create a defined thing, like you said, it's like something they can hold on to mentally it's like the referrals just start pouring in. Everyone you talk to knows somebody who needs this. You know, it, it seems like everyone you talk to knows someone that needs the thing you just described. And it's, it, it's magic. It feels like magic because yeah. all of a sudden I know before I got comfortable with all of this stuff, which was a couple of years ago, I remember not really engaging in any kind of marketing and sales because I just didn't believe it would work for a consultant. It doesn't, I would, if you would ask me two years ago or three years ago, why I don't do direct outreach or advertise or anything like that, I would say it doesn't work for consultants. That's what I would have said. I would have said people hire consultants based on trust. And the best way to establish trust is for them to see you and meet you in person. So I used to do tons and tons of speaking gigs, which is true. That does work, but it's really hard on you and it doesn't scale that well. Fast forward a couple of years, and back then, I, I was well-known for a particular thing in a particular pond, but that pond got much, much bigger over time. It was, you know, the pond was mobile, and in 2010, it was actually still pretty small. There weren't a lot of people who did what I did. Uh, now, every huge corporation that you can think of has, like, an entire internal team, and Deloitte, and IBM, and everybody else has entire branches of their service, SAP, you name it. Everybody's got a, a big, you know, mobile workforce, like contingent or service or something. So even though I got lucky because what I did back then, it was accidentally focused, but it, it turned blurred over time. And I saw that, that as the market expanded and I buy and my, you know, my fish that was in that pond stayed the same size, I became a smaller fish. I it used to be a big fish in a small pond and now I'm the same size fish in a huge pond. And leads started to really fall off. And I was like, well, what am I going to do about this? And positioning is the answer. It just makes everything work because people can be like, it answers the so what question. I always imagine like when I'm, you know, I'm re I review all of these sales pages that people write for, for their own productized services. And I'm like, you got to answer the so what question for me. I'll say to them, they'll say uh, like, oh, I'm, you know, we're a, a passionate firm that hires smart people and, and works on tough problems. Or we create elegant solutions to, you know, tricky problems. And I, and I say, okay, imagine someone reading that headline and saying, so what? And then answer that question. So what? You're passionate. What do I care? You know, so imagine a sort of skeptical reader who does have desperate needs that you could serve, but you're not, you're not connecting the dots for them. And once you start to do that, it's like magic. Like I said, it's just amazing. And not only do you get better word of mouth, but it creates something that you could actually advertise. Imagine advertising. I bet you not a lot of freelancers advertise, but if you could say, Hey, 
got this problem, I solve it. Here, you know, click here to solve this particular problem, to take this problem out of your life or to capture this opportunity that you're, you're slipping through your fingers. People click on it. Not to mention how it opens up more effective advertising opportunities like uh, sponsoring a, a niche-focused uh, website or newsletter or mm-hmm. advertising in a niche publication yeah. or, or writing for a niche publication and getting advertising for free. All that stuff just opens up mm-hmm. when you when you narrow down who what you do things for is right for. That was terribly said. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> like we were saying earlier, don't have to do it for your entire business. It could just be for a particular service to start with. And mm-hmm. if, if you're nervous that it's going to sully your amazing online reputation, <laughs> you can sort of, uh, you know, set it up under a different t- sort of temporary brand name, kind of like Kurt did with Website Rescues. That's like I did with Expensive Problem. So like here's my a, main website. Yeah, my main website is JonathanStark.com, and I started this different thing yeah. uh, at ExpensiveProblem.com. Which really seems like it's trying hard to take over your business. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's nearly, it was nearly half of my income this year, which is unbelievable. Here's another thing we should talk about, I think. There's this idea. I think it, it does happen sometimes. I, I'm a case maybe where it doesn't happen every time, but you get better at certain things with repetition, right? You get more efficient uh, at delivery or your, your cost goes down to deliver the same thing when you get more practice doing it. I know off the record, you've shared a story about that, Jonathan, with one of your productized services. Um, So maybe you want to talk about that. Maybe you don't. But just in general, I'd love to talk about that idea that you can become more profitable with a productized service. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. So um, I've got a, there are a couple of downsides to productized services. And I think the biggest one for me being a pricing guy is that there's big potential to be leaving money on the table. So let's talk about that for a second. If you, you know, to use the analogy from earlier where I was saying, you know, you create this productized service, maybe it's $5,000. And if mom and pop pizza down the street from you thinks that's crazy, uh, but Papa Gino's might think that that's totally reasonable or drop in the bucket. The problem is if Papa Gino's hires you to do this productized service for them for $5,000 when they would have paid 50,000, then you've left a lot of money on the table. So in that case, the price should be higher because Papa Gino's is getting way, way, way more value out of it than you're charging. The other side of the the price equation is your cost. So it it might be that $5,000 is almost your walk away price. Like it might be a hard thing to deliver. Maybe it takes you a hundred hours and you feel like, man, I, I almost would have rather not even done this for the money they're paying me at, at the price of $5,000. I feel like I'm kind of losing money or getting ripped off or I would have rather not even, not even done it. So you've got your cost on the one end and you've got your price hopefully in the middle, but not necessarily. And then you've got the value on the other end for the client. So when you, when you first start off, if you have no clue what it's worth, you want to start off by probably the easiest thing for you to do is to start off pricing it right around or a little bit over what you feel is your break-even point of the product I service. So let's say you, you've got this thing and you, you feel like, eh, I guess I'd take $5,000 to do this fixed scope of work that I'm describing on my sales page. I guess 5000 would be roughly worth it. I wouldn't be bombed, but I'm not getting rich either. 
if if you have no clue what to price your product or service at, that's a good place to start because you'll feel comfortable. You'll be able to say the price to somebody with a straight face. You'll feel like you can make a case for that price. It wouldn't be like you said, oh, that'll be $5 million and you wouldn't be able to do it with a straight face. So it's a, it's a safe place to start. It's certainly on the low end. But what happens is, to Philip's point, as you start to deliver the, you know, you get some sales, you do the delivery. So let's say you've done three or four of them. And you're like, you know, the clients are raving about this. I think I can get even bigger clients than I'm getting. I could probably raise the price on the one hand because you, you get the sense or, or they are literally telling you that they would have paid more. You can, you can get that information after delivering it a few times and be like, you know, I could probably raise the price and it would still be so valuable to my target market that they would continue to buy it. On the other end of the spectrum, you can get better and better at doing the thing. So whether it's that you created some code libraries for yourself, or maybe you have some templates or boilerplate that you've put together over the course of delivering it, or maybe there are some particular pieces that are a huge pain for you that you could deliver in a different way or that the clients don't seem to really value anyway, so you just remove it. So what I'm saying is over time, as you deliver it repeatedly, you'll find that uh, hopefully you'll find that the value is higher than you expected and and that clients recognize that. And you'll be able to optimize it and automate some things on the cost end so you can start to raise the price and decrease your cost, which makes it, uh, I guess, exponentially is an exaggeration, but it makes it a nonlinear, I guess that's exponential, nonlinear increase in the profit that you're making off of that particular thing. So I, yeah, and, and I think Philip, you're referring to my road mapping service that, yes. yeah. So when I first started offering it, I purposely offered it in a very low price because I wanted to get feedback from people and I sold like four in one day. So, you know, I think I, it was like 300, something ridiculously low, like 300. I was like, I, I need something at the $300 price point in my product ladder. I'm just going to go ahead and do a road mapping thing. Cause I know I can do it with zero preparation. I could just do one. And that was way too low, I could, obviously, because I sold four of them in one day. So I was like, all right, let me double that. Or I think I, I think I raised it to 700 and I sold a bunch more. So I was like, all right, it's still too low because the value, whatever reputation I had was creating enough value with people who I didn't even know that they were willing to, you know, get up off of seven or maybe it was 800 bucks. I can't remember. And, and, you know, go ahead and do it. So over time, I found that people valued it more and more. And I, I was like, it was funny because I was like, I remember chatting with Philip and saying like, man, I hate doing these roadmaps. It turns out I didn't hate doing the roadmaps. I just felt like I wasn't making enough money off of them. I felt like I was, I was, it was below my walkaway price. Once I got, you know, I raised the price, of, you know, now it's like around 1300. Once I got the price up to about $1,300 and I had decreased all of the really annoying pieces of the delivery and optimized all of those, all of that stuff. It started to feel more fair to me. It felt equitable. People are still getting lots of value out of it. And it, you know, but it took, I don't know, how long did that take? Six months, maybe? Yeah, something uh, like that. For me to go through that process. Right. And that's the exact process I'm suggesting for people, which is to, you know, from a pricing standpoint with the productized service, when you first come out with it, you're probably going to feel like it's barely worth doing. And you're probably going to feel like you're leaving money on the table, like the client got a, a really good deal. There's nothing says you have to leave it at that price forever. You could, you know, 
you could just say every time I sell one, I'm going to increase the price by 50% until it stops selling and then I'll back off a little bit or I'll increase the value on the sales page or whatever. I want to jump in and say, you, you, not you, Jonathan, but you listener will probably not know anything about the volume to expect. If you're like me, I always wonder whether I'm, whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist. And I think I'm an optimist because whenever I launch something, I just have these visions of like, oh my gosh, what if this takes off? You know, what if this just sells way beyond expectations? And to be honest, that almost never happens. I think that's, this is a whole separate thing, but I think that's one of the core skills of a entrepreneur is dealing with disappointment vis-a-vis your own expectations and what actually happens and being willing to say, okay, well, let's launch it again or let's optimize that a little bit and try again. Anyway, you just won't know about volume. And, and I think with, there's a couple things that relate to pricing. When you think about selling something for, let's say $500, that may not get you excited. You know, like a lot of people wouldn't get out of bed in the morning to make $500 because they know that they can do these big custom projects that have a big price tag associated with them. But if you knew that you could sell something that took you an hour of work to deliver and you could sell three of them a week for $500, I think a lot more people would be interested in that. And so I think volume plays into the whole idea of pricing. And you just won't know. So I think what Jonathan is suggesting is is right on. Start with something small. Don't try to turn custom software development into a productized service. <laughs> I think that's no. one thing we can say as a best practice. That's probably not going to work for you. That's probably not going to work. I mean, I've seen people do that to say, to try to say, we'd like to set up a productized service where we'll develop a, a mobile app MVP for, let's say, $5,000. and I, I could see somebody kind of making that work, but there's, my gosh, there's so many variables that you have to turn into fixed quantities so that they're not variables, so you don't get killed on scope. And it's hard to sell something like that. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say don't ever try it, but just know what you're getting into. Um, well, the only the only way to do it, yeah, th- there's a way to do it, but it's not super realistic, which is to price it astronomically high. Ah. So, but it's it's just not is too hard in my opinion. I mean, you could say, Oh, you know, custom websites, $1 million, uh, you know, and you know, right. <laughs> and have a little stand in front of your house where you sit out. <laughs> but I think a better approach is like you're saying to start small. And I mean, maybe what I'm actually saying is don't start with implementation, start with something that's planning or analysis or report, because those are going to be easier for you to constrain the scope. And if if you're doing something, I mean, even something like I'll write you a landing page for a thousand dollars. I mean, what does that mean? A landing page, I I have landing pages for my own business that are about 50 words and an opt-in box. Other landing pages I've seen are thousands of words. So a little bit of a rabbit hole I've brought up. I I just was saying that you won't really know about the volume, like how many people are going to buy it until you do it. So start small and consider it an experiment. I, and I'm really, I'm just saying what Jonathan said, just trying to make mm-hmm. that point ex- more explicit about volume. The thing that you're talking about with the scope is the level of collaboration. You need to pick something that has an extremely low level of collaboration. A, a software project, like an implementation has high levels of collaboration. It's an ongoing collaboration between you, the client, and probably some third parties. And that is almost by definition, 
it's very, the scope is almost unknowable. It's really hard. It with, you know, it's certainly way too hard to publish a generic sales page for with a price. It's going to be different case to case. And that's why you price them on an individual basis. Maybe. I mean, I have one edge case. I don't know if it's, if it's unfair, like my uh, positioning accelerator program, there's a fair bit of collaboration, but I've sort of had enough experience to, to understand what the bracket is and I, and I can price it at a way that makes sense, I think for me and my, and my clients there. But maybe yeah. I'm just kind of picking on that one little edge case that in general, I think collaboration plus implementation is probably where the, the sort of danger zone lies with product yeah, and yeah, services. Yeah, you're totally right. You know, because you're not, you're collaborating with, you know, I'm collaborate, collaborating. It's a high touch. You can still have high touch, but they can't be collaborating about the output. Yep. See what I mean? So like yep. you're not changing your course every time you collaborate with someone. Right, exactly. And I don't do implementation as a part of that. I'm providing right. advice and guidance and feedback. And so maybe that's the key distinction. Mm. So, yeah. So like you're like there are deliverables. I tell people not to focus on deliverables, but they exist. And you're going to and if they're changing every single time, then you get no benefit of having a productized service. It's just a custom service. Yep. So, yeah. So when I say collaboration, I did, I do mean exactly what you said, which is like that combination where they're collaborating on the end product instead of necessarily, you know, just their, just application of the materials to their life. That's a little, that's a different kind of collaboration in my mind. Yeah. But you know, that brings up the point. I don't think I've ever really been able to put my finger on what that is. Like what makes for a bad productized service collaboration plus implementation might be as close as I've come to to defining what that is mm -hmm. yeah it, yeah it's certainly something that it, it's it gives people something to stay away from though so like if you you know like i feel maybe it's i don't know it's hard to say maybe curse of knowledge here but if you're nervous when you're writing the sales page or you're describing what, what i usually tell people to do is just write an internal document for yourself when you're creating a new productized service that describes to you or perhaps a mentor what the timeline for the delivery will be. So the customer says, go, here's my money, do it. And you have a timeline of what you need from them, when you need it, how much input you're going to need from them. And th those pieces should be small. It, in my opinion, I feel like those things should be small. Uh, if you are, to, if you're used to doing custom website development work or illustrations or custom photography or something, the input about how you should be doing your job should be very low. And any of the input that you get from the client is going to be things like access to employees or other resources that you need access to inside of their organization and understanding perhaps what their business goals are, how their customers think or access to their customers. But there should be no collaboration whatsoever around how you should do your job. And, you know, anyway, so you go if you go through the whole timeline of the delivery and you describe that to yourself. The ones that I see as the most successful are the ones that take under 10 hours and are delivered over the course of like two or three weeks at the most, maybe four weeks at the most. It shouldn't be this giant undertaking, in my opinion. It should be something it best, it not should, I shouldn't say should, but uh, best case scenario for someone starting out is that you start with something that if it's a complete failure, you only lost a few hours. I guess that's what I'm getting at. So minimize your risk by starting out with a relatively small thing that you can 
do in a few hours across, across the course of a couple of weeks that has a minimum of customer engagement, a minimum of customer collaboration. Uh, and really, it's just a risk thing. Like just to, you know, when you're starting out, you don't want to take this huge risk and say, oh, you know, my productized service is going to be, I don't know, mobile app prototypes that take you six months. Well said. <laughs> you think it seemed kind of <laughs> rambling to me, but thanks. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, like that was probably one of the fatal flaws in in my productized service. My content Sherpa was just there was maybe too much of a collaborative aspect to it, and yeah, there there were some other things. One last point I want to bring up: you used the plural when you talked about price. You said prices, and I I know that was not an accident. Like when you're pricing a productized service, it's that choice of yeses, just like with custom work, right? Mm-hmm. Give, you know, giving yeah. multiple price options instead of it making it a, do I need this or do I not? It's how much could I spend or, you know, to get what I want out of this. It, it sort mm-hmm. of shifts the conversation, right? Yes. Do, so do you I mean, go with like two or three price points? How do you do it? It depends. It's sort of, it depends. I, I'm a huge fan of giving people options. And whenever I do a custom proposal, I always do exactly three options because those, I know that the custom proposal is the only way that the customer is considering working with me because I only do custom proposals for my mobile business. And I have a very low, low emphasis on productized services uh, right now on that website. It's mostly all retainer engagements. So it's a different story with expensive problem and the sort of pricing and coaching work I do there, the, the options I give are really what I refer to as my product ladder. So you can, it could, but they all really drive toward the same outcome. So even though I don't have any individual productized services anymore that have multiple levels, I had three levels of coaching at one time, but I broke those into three different products. So I'm still offering options to people, but they're not within individual products. I picked a price for each product and that's that. So, you know, right now those products are a book, a one-on-one coaching call, a roadmap or monthly coaching. So five different options. They range in price from $50 to, let's see, it's $50, $500, $1,300 and $3,000. So people, you know, if they want to really accelerate their process and they've got more money than time, they can jump straight to the top of the ladder and you know, pay me $3,000 a month to help them personally. If they're not so sure about me, maybe I'm a snake oil salesman and they just want to dip their toe into this first. They can spend, you know, 49 bucks and get my book and start there. So I think it's important to offer people options. So if you're first, if you're first starting out, I'm feeling like the safest way to go if you do something like web development is to just continue offering general web development, but create some productized service like a website teardown or a performance audit or a mobile usability study, something like that, that would lead, you know, that would give uh, clients or prospects a relatively low risk way to work with you in a financial really in a financial with a financial relationship in place. So that at the end, they can be like, man, you know, that was great. That was awesome. Uh, We love what you what you suggested. We don't really have time to do it. Can we hire you to do the implementation? And then you go through your normal process. So, um, but you know, so there, I guess you've got two options where you've, you know, they can either buy this preliminary road mapping service, whatever it is exactly, or they can engage with you on a custom project. I'm a little bit nervous to counsel people who are just starting out to get too tied up 
in pricing tiers. I could kind of go both ways. But I feel like it, I feel like for someone who's just trying to get, you know, to JFS a uh, a new product that offering tiers almost creates a decision paralysis type of scenario. Like it's a good thing to do, but don't let it hold you back if you can't figure it out. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree because I feel like you need to know your market better than someone who's just starting out with this is likely to know their market. So yes, yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It's a refinement. Yep. Yeah, it's a refinement. Yep. And, and I mean, if if in doubt, just price it at your break-even walk-away price and just start there. And if you can't sell it there, some people uh, are going going to be inclined to say, well, that was just a bad idea. I would say don't do that or don't assume the price is too high. Assume that the value is too low and you need to work on that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Your clients are not price shoppers. They are just value conscious. So yep. if they don't see the value in what you're delivering at a particular price or you're offering to deliver at a particular price, you've got two options, lower the price or increase the perception of value. So increasing the perception of value is a better way to go because <laughs> your costs are probably going to stay the same. It gets into a tactical thing of like one of the questions I had early on with this whole idea that I was selling my services fixed scope, fixed price is do I put a buy button on the site? And I think that would unpack a you know, whole nother can of worms. <laughs> oh yeah. I would that's say, a whole. I would say in general, do something that gives you a chance to talk to prospects so that you can get feedback. It's tempting to want to take this idea like all the way, which means having a buy button on the site. But I think if you do that, you'll miss out on valuable sort of intel, you know, like information on your market that you could obtain by just talking to somebody. And um, I don't know, again, that would probably be a whole nother 30 minute conversation to really unpack that. But that's that's what I think about that issue. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. Like you'll get there. You will get there. You will eventually put a buy now button there. But don't start out that way. The easiest call to action to implement and most useful when you're first starting out is just email for more information. Send, just have them, just have a regular plain old email link. And it, it just takes no effort for you to put together. It allows you to, to engage in a conversation with someone. And sure, if you're getting a million emails and you need to structure it, maybe put a form there, a, a contact form there instead, or maybe put a, you know, make them click on a link to schedule a calendar, you know, a Calendly link to schedule an appointment in your calendar if you're getting drowned in bad leads. But to, to just ship the thing, get it out there, just put your email on there. It's not that big a deal and you're not going to be drowning in leads. And, you know, you can, like, like Philip said, you can engage in a conversation. Once you, once you engage in enough conversations through either sales of the product or delivery of the product, you're going to be able to read their minds. You're going to be able to read the minds of people you haven't even met yet. And then you can put a buy now button there. But before that, it's you're missing out. Yeah. Well, I think there's more to talk about. And I, I'll be honest, I'm sort of cooking this idea in the back of my mind that we could maybe put something out to our email list and see if we get somebody on the show next week who would, would be someone who's pondering this and maybe want some advice on their specific situation. Mm, do a live coaching thing. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, certainly sending in questions is a great thing to do. That's for sure. Yeah. We should probably pick some picks. Absolutely. Why don't you go first? All right. Uh, I will first send people to uh, an online resource, which is at, geez, what's the link? It's, I think it's, well, whatever. We'll put it in the show notes, but 
It's a to a article on my site called building the perfect sales page, which is something that you will probably need some help with the first time through. And it's a step-by-step guide to the, you know, the information you need to put in the order that you need to put it in nine sections of a sales page. And it gives you the description of each section. And then it gives you an example of a completed sales page that follows that template. If you're new to writing sales pages and you're new to the concept of selling something like a productized service or a product, even, uh, it's a really, in my humble opinion, it's a great place to start. I've pulled in information from Brennan Dunn, Amy Hoy, geez, who else? Sean D'Souza and sort of synthesized it all into a format that, uh, that I've find works for me and works for lots of students. It's a, a real no brainer while you're getting used to writing your own sales pages. Uh, you can learn the groundwork that the sort of, the sort of guidelines and eventually you can start to break the rules, but, uh, it's, it's a great place to start if you're completely new to it. That's probably it for this week. Nice. And I think I'll put a couple links to some fairly mature productized services in the show notes. What I would like to do though, as my pick for this week is, is, Encourage people to, anytime they see something online where they're like, oh, that's amazing. I want to do that, <laughs> which, you know, I, I have had my fair share of that. I want to encourage you to go to the Internet Archive Wayback Machine and look at previous versions of that thing that you find so inspiring, that productized service that you want to emulate or that uh, sales page that you think is amazing or just that person or group of people who have a company that you think is fantastic looking at a previous at their previous attempts at getting at where they are today i think is just so awesome because it just kind of shows you that it was a journey for them too it wasn't like you know it came out fully formed it wasn't a stroke of genius on the first try pretty much anybody that you admire doing something online will have some kind of less impressive version of that thing a year or two years back, maybe even not that far back. And so I, I don't know exactly who, who runs the Wayback Machine, uh, but I just think it's one of the great assets of the internet because of how you can use it to just understand where people came from and the fact that v- virtually nobody starts at amazing. We all start at sort of humble and flawed and basic and, and get there over time. So, uh, yeah, just check the show notes for some links to uh, notable productized services and, and, and then look at the backstory on those via the Wayback Machine. And I think you'll be as, as fascinated as I am by that. So that's our show for this week. Hope to see you next time or uh, hope to see you register as a download number next time or hope to <laughs> more importantly get questions and feedback from you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.